Welcome. I'm Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction. It is June 6, 2008, and we're at our MitoAction monthly meeting, and the topic today is Too Many Doctors, Managing Multiple Specialists, and I'm excited to welcome um, Dr. Corson, I hope you don't mind saying, a legend in mitochondrial disease medicine. <laughs> Um, who has been in practice for a long time and, and who many of you either know directly or have heard of, Dr. Mark Corson. Dr. Corson is um, on the Medical Advisory Committee for MitoAction and is also credited with being one of the founders and um, pioneers of this group about three and a half years ago. And so I'm excited to welcome him. And Dr. Corson, I'll let you share your academic affiliations and uh, and other, um, you know, information. But I just wanted to say before I hand it over to you that um, on behalf of all the patients who I think have been a part of your practice for a long time, thank you for um, staying with us and thank you for advocating for so many patients because truly, and for those of you who don't know Dr. Corson, you'll sense this as he speaks today, Dr. Corson truly is an advocate for the person with mitochondrial disease, so we're very lucky to have them to be part of our group today. So, um, Dr. Corson, I'll let you introduce yourself a little further, and then we'll get started on our topic. Um, thank you, Christy, and, and good afternoon to everyone. Um, I'm um, excited to be here and um, excited to be involved in such a forum for talking about mitochondrial disease, because so many people, um, I think, trying to attend meetings, but can't get to them for uh, numerous reasons. So uh, wherever there's an opportunity to get ideas across and share um, ways of managing this very complicated situation, um, you know, I, I welcome those opportunities. I direct the metabolic clinic at Tufts Medical Center in Boston and I'm associate professor of pediatrics at, at uh, Tufts Medical School. Um, and I, um, I've been involved in the um, metabolic disease field for the last um, 20 plus years. And back then, we, and I remember actually in the clinic only a couple of patients with mitochondrial disease at that time. That was in the mid 80s, and that um, was before there was a lot of there was even less awareness about mitochondrial disease than there is now. Um, and a colleague of mine really wanted to specialize in it during her fellowship training. Um, and um, I was thankful for that because um, she really wanted to give attention, and then she moved away, and, <laughs> and it became my responsibility, and it sort of became, uh, you learn the most about mitochondrial disease, not from the books and not from, um, you know, journal reports. You, you really learned it from the patients, and so it's been, so actually I should begin by really saying thank you to all of you for teaching me, because it's by having seen uh, so many patients and seeing trends and patterns and the way uh, Asians um, uh, behave and what responds in terms of treatment, that has really taught me a lot. So um, to my topic is to talk about um, how to manage multiple um, subspecialists, multiple doctors, and, and that's a real problem um, because mitochondrial disease is by definition a multi-system disorder because um, all organs are energy dependent on some level, and therefore, if they're energy dependent, and if energy availability is is a problem, then uh, pushed beyond a, a certain threshold or limit, an organ will become dysfunctional, and each organ is associated with a particular doctor, 
And so before you know it, um, you have multiple doctors involved in your life or in your child's life. And so that's, that's pretty normal um, and frustrating at the same time. Um, in most cases, and, and unfortunately not in all cases, and, and, and maybe, I, I, maybe not in most cases, maybe only in many cases, um, there's usually a mitochondrial disease doctor involved. And that's usually a metabolic doctor, a genetic doctor, a neurologist, or someone who is taking a particular, more of an interest than someone else in, in, in mitochondrial disease. And that's often the, the, the families, uh, the patient or families, who they identify with as sort of managing the mitochondrial disease. Again, for many cases, there isn't such a person involved, and that's, that's a real challenge to our field. Um, the mitochondrial doctor is... Um, may have a sort of better overview of the whole disease, but is um, and, and aware of how mitochondrial disease can affect a specific organ system. But the mitochondrial disease in most uh, disease doctor in most cases doesn't know how to treat um, the dysfunction in that organ. So, so um, as a person who is trained in, in um, pediatric genetic metabolism myself, I have a sense of how mitochondrial disease can affect the heart or can, ha can affect the gastrointestinal system, but I really leave it to my colleagues in those areas to do the managing because they remain up to date in those areas. And, you know, I often uh, find that or act as a resource and that doctor asks me, so why am I seeing this patient or what, am I, what, what do you think I should be doing? What do I need to be looking out for? That's where I can help them, and, but leave it to them to do the diagnostic testing and to recommend the treatment. Um, of course, the other challenge is, um, is that there's a real problem with awareness about mitochondrial disease, and um, it's better than it was. Um, it's better among the pediatric community. It's, it's, uh, there's still um, a lot of um, misperceptions uh, or, uh, about mitochondrial disease in pediatrics, but especially in adult medicine. Um, and that's a challenge for all of us as patients, as providers, and as MitoAction and UMDF and all organizations involved with mitochondrial disease. Um, the other thing is the healthcare system is really, um, it's not just obstructive, it's broken. Um, we have this, we have a, a system that is way big, that is um, very demanding, that is really not oriented to the patient as much as, I think, to the insurance providers um, or, or to big business. And it's really particularly not friendly for patients with chronic disease. Um, it's a little bit... And if that's as good as it gets for pediatrics, it's even worse for adult medicine for adult patients because there are fewer um, safety nets in medicine for adult patients. Um, there are more things out there for children um, and, and, and teenagers. So there's, you know, there's, there's only so much, there are a lot of, well, there are a lot of challenges and, and the healthcare system doesn't make them any easier. What I'd like to do is, with that being the background, um, I, I want to talk about two doctors, uh, two primary doctors. One, um, the, the you know um, the PCPs, the primary care providers, um, and I guess three doctors: the primary care providers, the mitochondrial uh, disease providers, and then subspecialists. Uh, because they're um, what I find happens is that uh, depending on who the patient is and depending on who the players are, I guess, involved with a particular patient, um, people, um, these doctors assume different roles. 
and um, which is appropriate. I think it, it means the patient or family is thinking and trying to make the system work for them, and so that's a good thing, um, but there are pros and cons in each case. So um, for the primary care providers, um, or the, in some respects, the um, some subspecialists, um, the good points are that, like, primary care providers are generally local and closer to you as patients, which is a good thing. So if something is going on, um, you can get to see them um, quicker and easier than you can get to see me because my catchment area is mostly doing less than I see patients elsewhere. Um, in general, primary care providers, either pediatricians or internists, are, um, it's easier to get, in, to get in to see them. Their schedules are more available than the mitochondrial clinics, usually. Um, the, another good point is the, that their population is growing. Um, that is to say, there are more, even though there's a need for more primary providers, uh, the, num the, the number is still growing, um, so there are going to be more around. And, um, and some want to be more involved. There are some primary care providers that will tell you right up front, you know, I have a very busy practice, and, you know, I can take care of your child if they have an ear infection or if they need immunization. But beyond that, you know, I call the mitochondrial clinic. But some, some doctors really want to be more involved, and, and they'll tell you um, up front uh, if, they're, if they're being left out of the loop. And especially in those providers, um, their confidence in dealing with mitochondrial-oriented problems increases over time, and that's, that's often I find very helpful. Uh, the bad thing with primary care providers is that they're, in general, they're not aware of mitochondrial disease, and they don't, they don't understand the big picture of mitochondrial disease in terms of where a patient starts out, where their, how their disease progresses, um, what are potential concerns to look out for, that in general they have very busy practices, um, which uh, really interferes with their ability to focus on a person or a patient who has multiple problems. And even though there's a term out there called the medical home, which is something put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's a term used that really the, the, the primary pediatrician is the person who should be the one who coordinates, act, uh, you know, a patient's care, um, acts as a liaison between their patient um, and subspecialists to be able to be a, a, a voice of that patient's care. Um, even though that's the case, I find that most metabolic patients are really kicked out of the medical home. Um, or, and kicked out is probably too strong a term. It's, they're not welcome because the providers feel very uncomfortable with them. And most are not good at managing very chronic disease, um, especially if they have a busy practice. Um, plus, on a very practical level, they don't have a lot of experience at managing some of the mitochondrial issues, which are manageable. And um, it doesn't mean they can't be taught, but um, they don't come to treating a mitochondrial patient with that experience. Um, the challenges for mitochondrial disease clinics is that, yes, they're very knowledgeable, um, uh, you know, more or less about mitochondrial disease. They know the big picture. Um, they can help patients and parents prioritize the issues, like these are your five issues, but these are the two that you really have to look after now. Um, they're very familiar with chronic disease because that's the nature of genetic or metabolic disease. And they have, you know, a lot of practical experience, uh, especially given the constraints of the healthcare system, so that they can, um, they can tell you how, you know, you're, you're not going to want to come all the way in here for IV fluids if that's what you need, 
better to go in your local ER and I'll call ahead and, you know, and it's, it's a way of just working the system a little bit better. Um, unfortunately, the challenges um, in using the mitochondrial disease clinic for assistance is you, often they're not local and they're far away. So, you know, if you're seeing a, a, person, a, a clinician in a mitochondrial clinic, you know, four states away, that's not helpful if uh, you need, if you, you or your child need to be seen uh, because of a problem. Um, because there are so few mitochondrial clinics and because there aren't people going into this area, um, and, and so we don't expect the, the, the number of clinicians to increase, they're simply not as available. Um, meanwhile, more patients are being identified, and, 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 and so that, that um, the need by patients is growing, but the availability of clinicians in the area is, is not. Um, and of course, this creates a, um, a great problem to patients and families um, because if there, are a lot of, if there are lots and lots of doctors involved and if um, uh, if there are lots of doctors involved and if the issues are complex and if uh, a patient's symptoms um, develop keep changing so that if you're seeing a doctor every six months but the symptoms are changing between the clinic visits, hmm. then it, it becomes a real problem, um, one, keeping doctors up to date. Two, no sooner do you visit a doctor but then two or three months, you know, before, you, before the next visit, things have changed and it's no longer, a clinic note is no longer up to date because so much has happened since then. Um, what this does is it places um, the responsibility on patients and parents to be the primary providers of information, and that puts them at risk. Um, I'm sure you're all aware that there's a risk of, you know, that the term uh, Munchausen disease by proxy, where um, for those of you that aren't familiar, Munchausen disease is a disorder in which a patient um, seeks attention for their medical issues, whether they're real medical issues or imagined and uh, to, to, to gain attention. Um, and it's an underlying psychiatric disorder. Munchausen disease, Munchausen disease by proxy is where a person um, seeks attention on behalf of a family member, usually a child. Um, and again, it's, often, it's generally fabricated. Now, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with a case of mitochondrial disease, you're dealing with a case of a, of a disease where the symptoms are very variable. So they can, you know, patients have good days and bad days. A doctor may not see a patient always on the bad days that the is present. Um, here, a patient or parent is very savvy about their own disease and knows a lot of medical information, which raises concerns in some doctor's minds. And they're telling you, um, and these patients are telling you all about what happened in all these doctor's offices. And you may have some notes in front of you. You may not have notes. The notes may not have to be up to date. But some doctors will look on that and say, you know what, there's something not right here. You know, this child doesn't look that bad, but the parents are telling me this. And it's the nature of the healthcare system that, um, you know, and, and the nature of mitochondrial disease that places patients in, in, in potential danger, uh, and parents in potential danger. And so, you know, that has to be included in, in this discussion as well. Um, before, um, before we, we open up the call, though, 
what I wanted to do is put out some suggestions that I, I think have been helpful um, for some of the patients and families that I follow. Um, um, in terms of navigating this, this confusing and frustrating system. One is um, whether or not um, you use your primary care provider more or less, um, it's, it's really important that you have one. And what I suggest is, um, you know, the sooner to, di you know, sooner to diagnosis is, is, is preferable. So after the diagnosis is given, sitting down with your doctor and asking, these are what my needs are. This is this is what my parent and my child's needs are, uh, and these are what my expectations are. And put put it right out there. Some doctors will tell you, I can't do this for you. I'm I'm too busy. I'm I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do well by you. Well, yes, sir, you want to hear that. If, if that's the truth, you don't want one or two years to go by of a passive aggressive relationship happening, where you're calling in, you're not getting a call back, or and you're not getting your needs met. So if you hear that, that's actually terrific. Um, on the other hand, if you hear from your doctor that, um, you know what, okay, I can do that, you can sort of work out, work out the terms of um, how things need to happen so that your needs are addressed and they feel that they're in control and uh, can help you. Um, if, if you find yourself looking for a new um, pediatrician or internist, uh, don't bother looking for one who's knowledgeable in mitochondrial disease because they really don't exist. What you're looking for is someone who is conscientious, who's going to follow through with, a, with, with an issue, and who's open to communicating with other physicians. Uh, if you get someone like that, that's, that's really the best you're going to get, and those are the attributes that you would want in any uh, attentive doctor. Um, the next suggestion is um, the concept of the medical home, again, where, um, you know, there's one place that is going to really be the advocate, the liaison, the coordinator of all your issues. That really doesn't exist. However, um, it's probably more practical to have the primary provider and the mitochondrial clinic share the title of medical home so that between the two of them um, that most of these issues can be dealt with. The mitochondrial doctor perhaps giving the instructions uh, on many cases and the PCP carrying them through uh, with guidance. And again, the more the PCP is involved, the more they will learn. Um, it is the nature of most um, patients, and I, and, and I understand completely why, to call the mitochondrial clinic when there's an issue. But in doing so, in excluding the doctor, the primary care provider, the doctor feels more and more out of the loop and is less, becomes less invested in the case. So. So it really does pay off, even if after the fact you have to call the PCP and let them know what's going on. Number three is find a helpful contact person in every clinic setting, which is the nature of what patients and parents do anyway. They find the nurse who really listens to them or who's easier to get through. And in doing so, shower them with praise and show your appreciation. Because, um, you know, you don't, you don't make money um, in this area. And... Um, so, so providers in this area, I think, really have to like what they do. And part of liking what they do is knowing that patients appreciate what they do for them. So it, it's um, really a useful exercise on your part to, to do that. You as patients and parents need to be good advocates. Um, you need to be assertive, but remember, you always must be respectful. 
because um, otherwise it's, I think you shoot yourself in the foot. So absolutely, if you have to be a bitch to get something done, there may be times that you really need to do that. But if you play that card too often, then people will start to turn away and turn off. And even if you're late, and even if you, your, your need for help is, um, is warranted, it's still, um, you still make, might not get the, what you need if uh, you, abuse the pe- you end up abusing the people uh, who suffer need. Number five is it's actually very useful, if you can, to keep um, a record of uh, what your medical record is uh, according to the doctor. So um, as to be put on the list of um, um, recipients of clinic notes or laboratory, uh, important laboratory uh, tests, so that you can just keep a record and keep them organized according to doctor so that you can refer to them or provide information um, uh, as needed. Um, some people, and I think this is very useful, don't carry around the whole medical record, but carry around with them the most pertinent, like the last clinic notes of where they were seen uh, by different doctors. They may keep um, sort of their medications, their allergies, um, what their, uh, the, the key aspects of their disease. They, they put them on the computer and then uh, edit them and download them uh, when they see a doctor. That's actually very useful. Keep, you know, any pertinent lab tests, the last lab tests that were done, that's useful. And besides that, um, all, it's, all, it's worthwhile, especially when you encounter a doctor or, or any health professional who doesn't understand mitochondrial disease and is suspecting, is suspicious of, of, the, of the whole diagnosis. It's useful to keep a separate page of, um, you know, itemized problem list with how the diagnosis was made and, um, you know, and who, and if necessary, who made the diagnosis so that if that doctor has any questions, they know who to call. But I would keep that separate and always available. And sometimes that can help um, cut the, um, you know, get through to a doctor who can't get beyond the suspicion of what the diagnosis, how this diagnosis was made. Um, I had one patient who, um, had been accused, actually, or in whom there were concerns about Munchausen by proxy raised by a couple of different doctors. And so the recommendation that we came up with is bring a notebook to every clinic visit so that they can write two or three lines of what the summary, what what that doctor's impressions were from that visit. It's not a complete clinic note. It's just their itemized summary or comments. So that at the next clinic visit, you can show this is what doctor, you, you, you don't have to be responsible for saying what happened. You just have to show them what, what you know, what the, um, you know, what the doctor wrote down in the book. And that actually um, improves credibility. Um, and I found that to be very helpful. Some doctors don't want to write, you know, aren't used to writing the book. But most, in this case, were, were fine with it. And I think it served her well. Um... What I've also found helpful is having, um, if there's a particular issue that's come up, have the primary care provider or the specialist call the mitochondrial doctor while you are in the office so that a plan can be made right then and there. And you can't use this for all issues, but for, the, for, but for important issues which are very time-specific, um, that's something um, helpful. And finally, um, I, you know, I, I, I can understand how difficult 
um, I mean, how complex, rather, um, your needs are and how many of them, how many needs there are. But it's always useful to keep in your own mind what are the priorities of the day so that, um, you know, what, what, what are the problems that we really need to address at this day, this week, this month. Because if you try to tackle all of them at the same time, it, it's way too overwhelming. So try to keep a, a, a list of the, the most important ones um, up front. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking and then um, and invite questions. Well, Dr. Corson, this is Christy, and thank you. That was um, an excellent overview as well as a summary of suggestions, um, which is really useful, I think, for um, I can speak as a mom. You're you're just so busy trying to live, right. you know, that we ne we never have time to back up and look at the situation and say, how can I make that more effective? How can I make that more efficient? You know, um, it's like opening the doors to the closet and it's such a mess <laughs> that you just close the doors again <laughs> and, ho and hope for the best and you'll deal with it later, you know, because it's such a mess. And so um, you're, you're the fly lady coming in, if you know that what that is. It's like an organizer, you know, who helps us to understand how to navigate that system a little better. Yeah. Um, so I, I thank you for that. And uh, I'm going to open the floor for questions, and the way that this works is we just take turns, and um, if we need to, I'll help clarify or restate. And then, uh, you know, and then I also invite anybody in the group who has um, something to add to feel free to, to chime in as well. So I'll open the floor for questions. Who would I have one. one. Go ahead. And introduce yourself right at the okay. beginning. Um, this is Jenna. I didn't okay. get to introduce myself at the beginning. Um, I had a question in regards to going to specialist offices who are not familiar with the disease. How do you um, address the problems of variability in symptoms? For example, um, my daughter has sometimes turned blue, and they said, well, we can't find any reason on the test why that should happen. Um, um. You know, but it's hard to say, you know, you can't. You know, tell me that, you know, I do. I did bring a couple of pictures, you know, that they said, oh, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, the variability is, is really, is a real problem. But that has to, you know, that's, um, that has to be part of the definition of mitochondrial disease. Um, so that, I mean, when you think about it, you know, mitochondrial disease is an energy problem. So most doctors will expect a person to be weak. So before, but before a doctor sees a patient, what has that patient done? They sit, they sat in the car for a half an hour or an hour, yeah. so they've really not done anything. And then they're sitting in the office as the doctor's taking the history for 20, 30 minutes. So by the time you're examining them, they've rested. So you examine them, and for the most part, in almost all cases, the the neurologic exam is normal. Now, in some cases, it's not. But um, that's that's a real problem. What has been helpful. Um, is if you video to um, we had one mother who just uh, showed me a couple of days ago um, um, had a videotape of what her daughter was like after uh, sorry what her son was like after waking up in the morning and what her son was like uh, early in the afternoon after coming home from school and it was striking on there that this was a child whose speech was slurred who wasn't um, uh, who couldn't be attentive who had trouble with word finding. Um, and it was and it wasn't quite steady on his feet. 
And then uh, she took the picture again after he had had, a, I think, a three-hour nap in the afternoon. And again, you notice the difference. Yeah. So that thing was, is believing, and uh, that can be helpful. I think where the, um, it, it, it's going to be useful over the next year or so to provide more um, information available to doctors um, that highlight the variable nature of the disease so that you'll be able to provide them with some resources and, and the, this, this riot point. Yeah. Does anybody have any additional suggestions that they have found has worked for them? Do a lot of doctors not believe in general what a parent says? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they don't believe uh, that. They find it. If they can't see it for themselves or see it on a test, do they just generally not believe what you describe? Well, you know, I... I it's it's very dependent on the on the doctor, but I think in most cases, um, yes, I think you, I think doctors go in with a belief, uh, with you know they're they're ready to listen. There's some doctors who are very science oriented, and, and especially if you're dealing with doctors in the academic community who may be research oriented, where you know show me the data. Um, so um, and, and I think perhaps pediatricians, and, and I don't want to say this. I don't want to generalize, and maybe this is very discriminatory, but I think pediatricians are perhaps a little bit more attentive um, to parents because they're used to talking with parents and they're used to believing uh, because they can't talk with the patients themselves. Um, they have, they're have they used to getting the information from someone else, and um, they're a little bit perhaps more sensitive. Um, but, yeah, the more data that you can show them, like, for example, the issues of fatigue, which fatigue is a very is a common complaint. Um, it's one thing when the and, and this sort of comes up all the time. Um, is what and it's usually the mother is what the mother is saying is she is she is she giving sort of a balanced impression of what the child is doing, or do you think she's overstating the case? Well, what I what I think is very very powerful is if you can get independent um, correspondence like or documentation, say, from a teacher, from a physical therapist, from any sort of activity, someone, anybody, like a coach, needs a lot of kids to write down that, you know what, this child is different than the other kids for these reasons. Yeah. That is I very strong. That. that is very strong. Okay. That's good advice. Does anybody have anything they would add to that idea of um, how to document the variability of the disease. What about charting? Does charting help? Charting, charting does help. Um, it, I did it, that once and it got thrown out. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I tried. I did that once and they didn't look at it and they threw it out. Well, uh, but, you, you, have to, you have to pick. Otherwise, you spend your whole entire day charting. Um, yeah. You know, if, if there are issues of seizures or migraines, then often that's quite appropriate if you're doing a food record because your child isn't gaining weight and the question comes up on whether it's a nutritional issue, that's, of course, very, you know, food record is very appropriate. Um, charting is useful if you're, say, going to a person with a particular issue um, or if they, if they want more information. Um, Again, sort of doctor dependent. Neurologists kind of love that kind of thing for seizures and migraine. Dietitians love that kind of thing. It depends what the the less related to the doctor the, the charting information is, the the less likely I think they're going to read it. Like in other words, if it if it appears if it appeals to a symptom that they care care about, 
absolutely. If, it, if it's not, or if it's, it's not clear whether it's related, I, I think you might get a less receptive audience. I mean, and that's practical. I mean, I think charting information is, 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 is very good, but I think practically, I, I don't know how often it's received. Other questions from the group? Uh, is it possible to get some kind of a list into uh, Mito Action for doctors who will see adult patients that have skills with mitochondrial disease? So, actually, in answer to your question, Jean, um, and Dr. Corson and, and his nurse practitioner, Margaret Clem, have been working for the last more than two years um, on... A, a guide for the primary care doctor about the various symptoms and how to manage those of mitochondrial disease. And it's literally as we speak, out of my hands and in a web team's hands who are formatting it and putting it in the web. And so it's, it's so close pending we can almost taste it, but that will be available. And, and Dr. Corson, you may have another suggestion, but my initial thought is that um, once that resource is available, the credibility that Dr. Corson spoke about is there then because this is a, um, a manual written by clinicians that will highlight some of the various symptoms and some basic what to look for and, you know, what to kind of take as your primary approach. And that is going to be, I think, really useful, particularly for those of you who are adult patients who um, may find that this, if the severity of your symptoms isn't enough to warrant true investigation or tests and so forth, then, you know, then perhaps you just get dismissed. Um, other, you know, Dr. Corson, would you add to that about well, the manual it, and use is that, Was that what your question was? No, that wasn't the intent of my question. So sorry, Dean. I'll, I'll let Dr. Corson answer then. So sorry. The intent of my question... Yeah, please repeat the question. My, my, the intent of my question was to have a rostrum, if you will, of uh, doctors with mitochondrial experience who are willing to see adult patients because as the identification of uh, children as patient, mitochondrial patients is growing, increasingly the availability of adult care is decreasing and we need to have some kind of a rostrum so that uh, people can find out where they can go. So, so Chrissy, uh, is there a plan to collect names? Dean, um, I was way off in answering your question. <laughs> Sorry, I misunderstood completely. Um, you know, I think we have talked about this before, and, and Mark, you know, we've talked about this um, amongst ourselves at MitoAction, too, that that it's a tremendous problem because folks don't know where to go to see those patients. Um, I think I have two thoughts. One is I actually just added a category on the forum on MitoAction.org that's called Mito Testing and Treatment. And my intention on that is over the coming next six months is to ask people to make a post on that forum that is, um, I'm thinking, by 
location. So if you're in the state of Washington State or if you're in, you know, wherever you are, the province of such and such. And then to share a tidbit about doctors and specialists who see the mite patients in that area. And then if you looked at that forum and you had, you know, 50 threads in that forum, they would be categorized not by question but by location. And rather than posting, hey, does anybody know a doctor I can see here in Seattle, it would rather, it would be instead an answer type style forum where you only post when you have a doctor that you can post there because then the other person who lives close enough to get to Seattle could find that and could say, oh, that's the physician that I could try to reach out. So that's my plan on starting to build that database. And then um, I guess the question that I have for you, Dr. Corson, is, you know, you mentioned with the primary care physician it's not necessarily um, a key criteria to find one that is experienced with mitochondrial disease, but rather to find one who's willing to learn. Do you feel like that's the same case with the specialists, or do the subspecialists really need to have a working knowledge and experience of mitopatients? Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I mean, ideally, if you can find doctors who have experience with mitochondrial disease, that's terrific. But practically speaking, at this point, until until we develop until we develop that kind of booklet, or until there are enough clinicians out there toward developing a booklet, um, um, I just look for the person who's going to do a good job. When I used to be a senior resident, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't. It would, I cared less about how much my interns knew, and more about how conscientious they were following up, um, uh, about following through. Because um, you know we were just they were learning we were discussing um, you know plans for the patients I just needed to be secure that they were going to do they were going to follow through on their patient care and so I find that to be very important and, and again communication if you don't know how to treat my patient then call me and I'll help you and I'll tell you what you need to know so that in next week if the same problem comes up you'll be able to. So, um, but yes, we should definitely develop a list of patients, um, sorry, a list of doctors, and maybe sort of whenever people sign in, uh, if they have doctors who have been either knowledgeable or even, you know, willing to learn, those, that's, that's important. That's, that's really important to keep a record of. I, I feel that this, this for adult care especially, this is uh, urgent, um, that, that uh, the, uh, the availability of adult doctors uh, with mitochondrial experience is not there, and um, I, as a patient myself, I can only express the fear you have in dealing with someone that does not know what, what uh, the complexity of mitochondrial care is and being given choices of what you want for your care when you don't know know what is safe for you and what isn't and it, and it is a scary situation and all those parents who have children your children will become adults and will enter that that gray zone where there is not much there for you right Dean I'd, I'd like to um you know, we've talked about this before, but uh, the Adult Advocacy Coalition has 
moved on past of our past our first project, which was generating legal advocacy needs, and we have um, Valerie, the disability attorney, working on on writing FAQs to answer those areas that your group identified. Why don't we talk, and maybe we can use that um, forum that I mentioned as a place to gather some of the information, and, um, and we can work together to put the word out to drive more people in the Mito community to put their information there in a way that would be helpful, because then we can start to figure out a way to catalog it that will make sense. I'm wondering if Dr. Corson would have some time at some time to uh, work with the adults and, and come forward with some uh, names or uh, something that we can use for this. I, I think it's a great idea, Christy. Sure. Um, I, I have a question about that or a concern, that is privacy. Uh, and again, Dr. Corson mentioned earlier that a lot of the problems patients face aren't with the physicians and their disease, but with the healthcare system. And that is, uh, a lot of people, I think, are reluctant to say in a public forum that they're seeing a certain specialist because of the way that uh, health insurance is connected with having a job. And, you know, if, if someone's identified as having a chronic illness, it may affect your employment. Absolutely. Right. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good point. Other questions for Dr. Corson? Christy, yes. this, this is MJ uh, in New York. I didn't get to uh, say hi when I signed on. Hi. Um, hi. And um, for Christy and Dr. Corson and Jean and um, for other adults listening in, but also um, for uh, parents of children. Um, I'm wondering if one of the things that we can add to our uh, list for discussion and action, which is what I love about the reason for being uh, of our organization, action, is whether there might be some concrete things we can do to um, create more availability of clinical care for adults, which um, I think can be done in a way that would also create um, more education, more awareness, and more clinical care availability for um, pediatric cases as well. Like, like something like maybe sponsoring a fellowship for uh, well, people that's, willing to sign it. That's one way to go, but I think there are a couple of different ones, and um, I have been uh, living with this disease for ten years, um, and. I've heard the same concerns and complaints for 10 years, and the progress that has been made is wonderful and very encouraging, and I consider MITO action a huge piece of that. Um, but um, I don't think that it is happening fast enough for, as Jean says, the well-being of the adults or the well-being of children who are going to grow into adults. And... Um, I've looked at models for other diseases and how they made more clinical care available, and Dr. Corson is so articulate in terms of framing what doctors need to understand that I think there's some very interesting pieces here and maybe an opportunity for us to get concrete about this in the way that we are about other things. 
it sounds to me like we need to form a task force to oh no <laughs> to focus on this. I mean, this is this is kind of the way things work. I mean, this is what has been really a blessing for MyoAction is that we have been um, able to be responsive kind of based on what the need is. And I agree with you that the need is there. I mean, I often feel like I wake up in the morning thinking about what to do to help the community and go to sleep at night and dream all night about what to do to help the community because I, we can't fill the gap fast enough. Right. And, and Dr. Corson, I know you can relate to that. You know, we just we just can't fill the gap, the need fast enough. And so, um, right. This is how we respond, and so I think that you have some excellent suggestions. So what I'd like to um, recommend is that if you'd like to be a part of the, a task force to start to put together some ways to address um, a roster of doctors as well as um, the idea of needing to, you know, I don't want to say create a system that works for the patients because we, we can't change of systems that is broken, but to address the need to the ability that we as the patient advocacy community can, um, I'd like you to email me, and I'll put everybody together, and I'll email you back and make an announcement about when um, when we can have a conference call about it. So Christy, my email, yes. The task force that I would like to serve on is a task force that is specifically geared to generating a plan for action to create more clinical care for adults and children. That concrete and that action oriented. Because I've gone through, um, with all due respect to everyone, you know, the list of doctors, and there are, as I'm sure Dr. Corsi knows, um, real obstacles to um, creating care for adults. A lot of it is geographic. A lot of it has to do with the economics of a given geographic area. But I don't think that means it can't be done. And um, I think that really for it to happen, we need to get really concrete about actually taking steps to create the availability of more care. That's what I'm interested in. And that's what I hear Jean saying we need. And Kind of, Dr. Corson, that's what I hear you saying we need. Well, Not absolutely. to put words in your mouth. No, absolutely. There, there are multiple, I think there are multiple levels for that. Good. Um, there's the, in one of the, I guess, um, and I guess we all have our roles to, to play in making that happen. Um, but let me tell you about something that we, we that is ongoing right now. Okay. Um, is just the nature of increasing familiarity among the doctor's community mm -hmm. regarding mitochondrial disease. So mm -hmm. we, we have developed a metabolic outreach service where I am going to six medical centers right now in the Northeast as part of a pilot on a monthly basis uh, to review cases, to give lectures about symptoms that patients might have, doctors might see, all, you know, referring, and mitochondrial disease figures very prominently in the discussion of all kinds of symptoms. Um, and in part, we're... I've, presenting patients to speak to those medical audiences because as much as I'd like to think that I'm a good teacher, um, patients tell a story and I don't. And people remember stories because it's much more compelling in person. Yes. So um, that's, it's a very grassroots effort for two things. One is to increase awareness about metabolic disease in general, including mitochondrial disease. Yep. The other is to recruit 
it, it, I came into this area because of um, an interesting patient case. People um, don't know about this area of medicine, and unless they know about it, unless they hear about it and hear how interesting it is and how, gee, this is all, this is, this is the biochemistry I learned in first year, um, they don't know to even think about um, going into this area. So um, that's sort of my approach has been one through education and sort of and, and grassroots recruiting. But wherever you are, um, if you can find, if you go to your medical school and um, ask them, you know, do you have opportunities where patients talk to medical students? Hmm. Um, it's an opportunity, you know, they're not going to make any decisions on the spot to sign up. But that's how you start changing um, opinion and impressions. And so that's that's something that you can get involved in wherever you are. I've done some of that. And um, it has not by itself done what needs to be done to make the practical oh, problems no, that you're discussing as well as the economics of it. Healing in this particular market, and every region is different. So one thing that we might talk about is where to do more of this, where it is more viable, just to, you know, get models up and running. But I think that what you were talking about is wonderful and perfect, and I'm very grateful to you for doing it. Could I uh, add something in in addition to just a a roster of uh, individual physicians? I don't think we're at the point yet where there's a one place where people can go and see a list of all the regional medical centers mm. that will diagnose and you know, get to start, you know, the, the mito doctors that, um, you know, Dr. Corson referred to earlier. And again, I, you know, as the previous speaker just said, it's, it's very different regionally than, um, you know, it, it would be a place for people to start. And maybe if you identify those centers, you know, you could identify physicians connected with them. Also, um, I want Dr. Corson is going to be um, be leaving our call momentarily, so I wanted to um, not dismiss the topic, but just give a chance for one one more question that um, someone might have for Dr. Corson with our. Topic. I have a question. I got a question. Possible? All right, so we got two questions on the floor, so we'll we'll handle those, and then we're gonna. Um, Say thank you and goodbye to Dr. Corson. So go ahead and don't forget to introduce yourself. Please. Hi, Dr. Corson. This is Tim Gibson. Hello. Hi, hello. How are you, Dr. Corson? I can, um, you know, can you I'm hear good. me? I'm good. Hello. We, hello. We can hear you. We can, can hear you. you. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that Tim might know who this is, and I think that anonymity is very important right now. And I just don't want to say who I am, but I think that let's just listen to Dr. Corson today. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> So, um, Tim, would you still like to ask a question, or would you like to move on to the next question? Yes, sure. Go ahead. Tim, do you move on. So, we'll move on to the next question, then, Tim. Um, actually, I just wanted to say hello. I'll, I'll hold off on that. My question for now. Okay. Uh, so I heard one other person say that they had a question also. So if you yeah. speak up. Hi, Christy, and hi everyone. This is uh, Stephen in New York. Hi, Stephen. Hi, it's a pleasure to talk with you again, Dr. Corson. Hello. We had the chance to talk uh, briefly by phone last year. I don't know if you had recalled, but um, as you might recall, I'm an adult patient who's been told by my uh, 
physicians that my symptoms or my abnormal results are very suspicious for mitochondrial disease. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, the mito specialists that I've been seeing uh, seem unwilling to actually make that diagnosis without a repeat muscle biopsy to look at the uh, mitochondrial respiratory chain complexes. Um, and just to sort of briefly uh, get at the chase, um, I have abnormal blood, lactate levels, amino acids showing elevated alanine, um, abnormal metabolic panel, and I think abnormal lactate in my urine, organic acids as well. Uh, so far, I've had full mitochondrial DNA sequencing. It showed a number of mutations, um, one of which was new and wasn't seen in my map before. Uh, I guess the problem I encountered was that I was scheduled to have a muscle biopsy at the Cleveland Clinic, and the Cleveland Clinic mitochondrial specialist who had previously seen he was perplexed by my case, he felt strongly that I didn't need that biopsy, and so he actually contacted my surgeon there and told him not to perform it until I, this was after my having made the trip from New York to Cleveland, uh, just for that purpose. So I guess in my case, the physicians who ordered the tests and labs that performed them, um, one of the problems I'm having is that Basically, they seem unwilling to uh, to basically discuss the results with me or other physicians and to communicate with each other. And so the question I'd like to ask you is, how can I as a patient help to ensure that the mito specialists themselves are communicating with each other and cooperating so that I can have the proper tests and procedures done to finally get diagnosed? Um. Well, I guess it speaks to a larger issue. How do you get people to talk to each other? And it's not, it's not easy. They, right. You can only... You can only um, do so much. They have to pick up the rest. Um, right. I guess. I guess from my experience, there seems to be you know a disagreement about what what's really going on with me, and uh, the specialists themselves seem unwilling to want to talk with each other. And this is within the mitochondrial community. Forget about other physicians or other subspecialists. This is just the mitochondrial specialists themselves. Right. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, sometimes any, any guidance you can give me would certainly be appreciated. Sometimes you can, if you, sometimes if you get them to put it in writing so that you can actually carry it, um, to or or pass it on to the other physician. Sometimes that helps. Um, sometimes if you frame the question in such a way that, gee, if you don't do this, then this won't happen. Sometimes that's another. I mean, sometimes that's another incentive. It's if and I, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody, but. You know, at any given time, I'm sure these people have, um, you know, a hundred things, you know, to do on their desk, and they can only do so many at some time, and before they work their way through the list, there's already 50 more things, and so you know some things are just not going to get done. So the way is, is in, um, trying to increase the priority by telling them the the importance of what they're doing uh, or how it's going to affect, it's going to affect you, and, and hopefully that will be the the thing that'll um, that will get it done. If you if there's somebody in the, in the clinic, someone else in the clinic, like the nurse or the coordinator or the genetic counselor, who can uh, intervene for you. So if you establish and, and they can take on some of the responsibility of making sure it gets done, that's often very helpful. And I you know, I personally I realize that I, I fall down sometimes and in doing what I need to be done in a timely way. And I'm thankful when the nurse, when, you know, the, the people in our clinic are in my face um, to, to say, you know what, you're supposed to do this, and absolutely. And I'm happy when, when patients call me back and remind me because I know I wish I could 
do better. And so I, I don't mind that at all. So don't hesitate to keep asking. If you find someone else in the clinic to help and advocate for you, that's great. Very good. Thank you for your answer. So thank you, Stephen. So, um, so please join me in thanking Dr. Corson for his time today because, um, as Dr. Corson just mentioned, you can only imagine what his desk might look like right now. So, <laughs> um, so Dr. Corson, you have been very helpful, and I think that I'll speak on behalf of the group when we say that it's, it is reassuring for the patient and caregiver community to know that um, that you're on our side and that, you know, um, despite the difficulties of the system and despite how challenging it is to navigate not only the symptoms but the system as well, that, that you really do have, I think, the interest at heart and that you have stayed in this because of the patients and, and we appreciate and thank you for that. My pleasure. So I wish everyone good luck. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Thank you very much. So we'll, we'll say goodbye to Dr. Corson, and then um, we can stay on for another few minutes, and, uh, and we can even go back and, um, and let those who didn't have a chance to introduce themselves earlier um, who haven't had a chance to say hello um, jump in. I, I apologize for always cutting people off when the specialist jumps in, but I give them a window, and I want to maximize the most of that window that we have with them so that we, you know, can um, can squeeze every bit of knowledge and experience out while we're all together. So um, so I know we had a few other people have a chance just to speak up and introduce themselves by way of questions. Is there anybody else who's on the line who would like to um, say hi and introduce themselves? Yes. Um, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Great. This is Rhea in the Boston area. And hi, Rhea. Hi. Um, I'm an adult patient, and this is very helpful. I, speaking of that roster, uh, I'm actually thinking about moving within a year or so. And, you know, leaving the Boston area is very scary because there's good medical care here, and I have doctors who know what Mito is. And um, I can travel, I'm, I'm going to move within Massachusetts, I can travel to see the Mito specialists because I don't see them so often, but I'm really concerned about replacing my primary care physician, my current primary care physician is really a saint, and I just don't know if it's appropriate, but if there's anybody on the line from Massachusetts, um, the two areas I'm thinking of who are either National West, like you know, Concord, Wayland, or the Pioneer Valley, like Amherst or Hampton. I don't know if anybody has a primary care physician there to recommend. Is there a mechanism where they could uh, reach me somehow? So if anybody wants to um, to share that now, they could. Otherwise, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, um, Rhea, they, somebody, I'll be the gatekeeper if you want to, or the middleman, and somebody could email me, and then I'll forward it to you. Oh, that was so lovely. I would be so grateful. Um, also, can I ask one more question? Sure. What's your last name, Rhea? So just write everything down. T e v e n s. Rhea. Sorry, I missed the first part. Would you say that one more time? Rhea Stevens. S t e. Oh, Stevens. Okay, I just missed the first part. Thanks. Okay. And my other question is, I think you addressed this, and you felt badly because it wasn't what the person was asking. But I was quite interested 
you're saying something about a manual that Dr. Corson is making that might be put up on the website. And I'm not, and I'm not sure if I understood what it was, but what I would really like to have, because my primary care physician really, really, really wants to help me, and he doesn't always know how. Is that going to be something that he could look at and say, oh, okay, people with mito and dysautonomia often experience these symptoms, and here's what he should do if I were... Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So um, uh, I'll talk about that for a second because it truly is um, in in process um, very, very close. It's been a work in progress for a couple of years. Um, Mito Action actually funded part of Dr. Corson and his nurse practitioner, Margaret's salary for um, this project because we felt like it was so important to take their experience having seen close to a thousand patients for many years in this clinic here in Boston and get it in on paper, <laughs> you know, um, so that everyone else can benefit from that. And from Dr. Corson's perspective, he, as he was sharing earlier, is is receiving more calls incoming than he can handle mm-hmm. to try to help navigate the system of for patients, you know, do I react, do I hospitalize or do I not? What Do I give the fluids or do I not? Do I, you know, get concerned about the vomiting or do I not? And so um, what this is, is is a symptom management guide. So if you were on the website and you looked under the publications tab, um, then you'll see symptom guide for clinicians. And right now what's there is um, the introduction, which is written by Dr. Corson, and um, and I can even later today um, put a link to have the table of contents just for you to look at if that would be helpful, even though you won't have actual, um, be able to tap into the content itself, yeah, the chapters. But the types of things that are in this are general management of the person with mito when you're well or when you're sick, as well as protocols for um, school, the ER, fever, vomiting, um, anesthesia, and then a breakdown. In medicine, we often look at um, a person by a review of systems. So then the manual is actually written by a review of systems. So, for example, GI, neuromuscular, cardiac, renal, which is your kidneys, you know, hearing, eyes, and vision, respiratory, and so forth. And they're broken down with just some information about each that is pertinent to what might be normal, what might not be normal, what is of concern. And one of the things that I have learned from Dr. Corson is that it's a fine balance in working with your primary care physician to teach your primary care doctor to treat the symptoms the way that they normally would first Mm. and then also try to make sure that, you know, you're factoring in anything that you might adjust because of the mitochondrial disease. But what I hear that happens often, and I think if Dr. Corson was still on the line, he would concur, is that so the person, you know, presents with um, some abdominal pain, you know, and the primary care physician 
throws her hands up and goes, whoa, mitochondrial disease and abdominal pain. I don't know what that is. You need to see, you know, a GI doctor. So they don't even go through the process they would with a healthy person of saying, why might you have abdominal pain? Hmm, well, let's, you know, like, let's do a basic history and let's try to figure it out and let's do the most fundamental layer of tests just to try to figure it out. They go right away, oh, I have no idea. It must be something serious. And they send you off to the specialist and, and haven't gone through that algorithm. And it happens in kids, too, that the kid might have something basic. You know, they have allergies or an ear infection. And before you know it, you're being treated for your mitochondrial disease when maybe you have the allergies or you have the ear infection and it's somehow worse because of the mito. But that doesn't necessarily become a mito symptom to treat. Um, and so I have heard Dr. Corson just talking with our group, um, you know, at, at meetings and so forth about that need to try to empower the primary care physician a little bit also yeah. to just treat the person as if they were healthy and normal and then adjust for the mito and it's and as opposed to always just being scared and running off in the other direction sending the person to the you know the, the mito specialist they're the only ones who can deal with it and so i think that's part of the goal of this of his work is to go through the processes of explaining um, what to look for so um, it will be very helpful and to answer your overall question Yes, it will be on the website, and yes, it's a free resource, and um, you'll just need to be registered on the website and in order to be able to see it. Yeah. So um, if you are already registered for the newsletters, if you get newsletters from me, yeah. then you'll get an email when um, when that gets uh, published. That's awesome, Chrissy. That sounds like just what I need. Thank you so much. Oh, no, I'll, I'll pass that on to Dr. I, I can't hear. Good. So, um, so, and it will be very helpful. And the timing for this meeting today was really related also to knowing that this is um, coming up very soon. And so I want, um, you know, I think it's important to have that discussion. I mentioned at the beginning of the call that I am planning ahead for 2009 now for um, speakers as well as topics for these meetings because I have found that the it, it seems to be a good model. And um, we are able to replicate the information by recording these calls and then writing a summary about it and having it on the website. And so we've, we are um, able to educate one another in the community as well, support each other this way. And so I am... Um, if you have topics that you'd like to see discussed, and, you know, that um, or speakers you'd like to suggest that I get in touch with, please feel free to email me, director at mitoaction.org. Those. I think um, it's great, Christy. It's great. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. It, um, it, it is a it's a great way I think for us to be able to um, also have those doctors that we would never otherwise have as a captive audience for an hour, you know, and unfortunately we can't all have a, an individual consult with them, and I know that for some of you who struggle so much with trying to navigate the system, I wish we could do that. But at the very least, I think we get to hear them as part of our community as opposed to us being part of their community, uh -huh. and, and that's very important. 
Christy, on that on that um, medical thing that's coming up, will there be innocent, any information about uh, drug classes with with the potential of uh, um, causing problems with the mitochondria? Let me look at this. This thing here. So um, there's a section on mitochondrial disease and medications. Okay. Good. Um, because that's that's that, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll upload the uh, table of contents um, this afternoon so that that'll be, if you look at that symptom guide for clinicians um, on the me- on the publications menu, then you'll be able to, to take a look at the table of contents and that'll help. I just don't have the content um, quite formatted to go up with the way that it needs to be yet, but it's, it's pending. And I also wanted to mention our topic for the, for next month in July, um, and and we should also talk about uh, for those of you who are in the states, Fourth of July holiday um, is in July, and so um, let's go ahead and just talk about that for a moment. So in July, the Fourth of July is the first Friday of the month, and that's a big holiday here in the states. So we will not have that our teleconference on the first Friday, but instead we'll have our teleconference on the 11th of July, the second Friday of the month. Um, and of course, I'll send you out reminders about that. But just as you're planning for yourself, we'll bump that to the second Friday of the month. I'll also mention that on the second Friday of the month, and uh, we'll probably just. Um, bump this by a week also. We've been having a newly diagnosed support group, again, held by teleconference. Newly diagnosed meaning that you either truly are newly diagnosed or are in that um, suspension of going through the diagnosis that also is um, unique and stressful to MITO. And so we've been having a less structured telephone gathering on the second Friday of the month and the call-in information for that is the same as what you use today, and the um, time is the same as today at noon Eastern U.S. time, uh, second Friday of the month. But in July, everything will be bumped forward by a week because of the holiday. And the topic for the month of July is managing pain, and the speaker is Dr. Irina Ansom, who is a neurologist here in Boston at Children's Hospital, and um, she's, she's lovely, and she, um, is very interested in the topic of pain, so she'll be talking with us about that. Um, so, any other announcements or um, things that we'd like? I'd like to just say one more thing about the um, clinical care for adults, as well as the roster for medical um, You know, sometimes it's a... It's a chip away at the mountain kind of process, but we have to try, you know? And so there's what gets really hard, and we actually had a retreat, Mito actually had a retreat with the doctors in January trying to address this idea of advocacy for patients. How do we really advocate for patients? Because we're fighting against a healthcare system that is that is, as Dr. Corson mentioned, and I agree, broken. And there is such a tremendous 
fundamental, not only lack of mito understanding, but even more than that, there's just a lack of continuity of care, um, you know, or access or patient-centered resources um, that it's a quagmire of difficulties, and that's really challenging. So we had a retreat trying to come up with ways to do advocacy, and we talked about funding fellowships, and we talked about creating a joint center for mitochondrial disease and getting major pharmaceutical funding in order to do that. And we talked about, you know, if we had $30 million, what would we do to be able to create that patient advocacy? And it's a really hard answer to really pinpoint because no matter what, you often go back and you look and see that broken medical system as part of the root cause, and that we feel like we can't fix. So, yes. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is MJ again in New York. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I have, I always wind up in the same place that you guys do, whether we're having a chance to talk or not. My conclusion is that we have to make what we do around MITO part of the solution and a model for the solution. That's what everybody in healthcare wants. And I think that can be done. I, I agree with you, MJ, and I think, like I said earlier, you know, you sometimes feel like you're chipping away at the bottom of the mountain, and I think that when you look back and in three years, my reaction is so young in terms of a nonprofit, and we've actually really had an impact, and so that is encouraging to me that it can be done. Um, so I would like to just restate that um, if you would like to be part of forming this idea, because at this point it's really just an idea. I don't even have to find what the group would do or what their objectives are, but that's, we kind of just start by, I think, gathering the people together who do have the vision about that, and if you'd like to be a part of that, please email me, Okay. Um, and I'll help everybody get together and, and have a call about it. Do you think Dr. Um, Corson might be available for um, a meeting on it when we all talk? I think, I think he would be. I think the process that I would suggest is that we all talk first, mm -hmm. and then we invite him to join us, Great. and we kind of have more of a plan. Good. He indicated that he would be willing because I asked that question. Okay. Um, but he, you know, I think the more we <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, the more we can maximize this time, then the easier it will be for us. So, um, so we'll move forward with that. Did anybody have anything else they wanted to share or ask um, as we wrap up? I'm going to say good night from Australia because it's 330 a.m. and I'm done here. Susie. <laughs> That's Susie in, in, in our, 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 you know, night owl friend. Uh, it's the uh, night owl. <laughs> How are you, Susie? I'm good. Um, well, welcome. Who is this? So, Susie, you should introduce yourself because I know uh, why you can stay up to stay on the call, but nobody else does. So. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm Susie. I'm in Australia. Um, it's now half past three in the morning, um, and I've got two kids. We're trying to work out what's going on. <sighs> Hi, Oz. Hi, <laughs> Susie. This is Deb from the undiagnosed group. Hey, Deb. Hey, nice to hear your voice. <laughs> you too. So, um, Susie, do you, you, you feel comfortable sharing with everybody why you're up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning anyway? Because that helped me understand why you were 
Uh, I, I just would like to be able to work out, you know, whether I'm going down the right path, battering my head against, you know, basically what seems like the complete Australian medical profession because um, I'm just not getting anywhere. Um, I just, it keeps coming back to me and I'm, I'm being told, you know, what are your concerns for your children and, and why do you think there's something wrong? And, you know, when we look at them, we can see nothing wrong. And, mm. um, you know, there's obviously nothing physically wrong with the children, so it's got to be something else. Yeah, the only thing left out of that is my mental health and we're just not doing that part. So <laughs> it, it's been a, a long road. Hang on there, though. I I had a very good relationship with my primary care physician who knew there was something wrong, but it, it was just a matter of luck. She actually got to see me once when I was extremely bad, and after that, she was my best advocate. She said I had no idea from the description that it would be bad. So I was just stick to your guns. Uh, it's just hard. <laughs> Yeah, Have you is. been to see the the, the uh, big big name in, in uh, Australia for mitochondrial disease? Uh, I tried to get into Dr. Krista Dulu in Sydney, um, but we had the wrong referral. It came the referral came from um, a general practitioner, and it said come from uh, a pediatrician. There is a great uh, way resource online to keep track of your um, to build a healthcare record if you do see multiple specialists, and the website is iHealthRecord.org. I'll put that in the summary that I write about this meeting also, but for those of you that want to check it out, it's iHealthRecord.org, and um, it allows you to create an account and then build your record in a way that's got templates to prompt you to make it organized and so forth, and, uh, and I think that that's a great tool. Um, the other piece that I'll mention is, for those of you who have children, on the new school advocacy section of the website under the tab that says tools, I encourage you to go there and check it out because there are some templates there that you can um, open up and actually either print out or customize for your child that describe uh, the mito symptoms and so you can tweak those for your child and you can get your, in, these are school letters, so get your pediatrician to sign it and this is going to help you when you go to school to really be able to help the school understand what the child's needs are and how they have to be addressed. And so I encourage you to go, there's a lot of resources there and they are not things that we, um, I mean they're things that really have been created by parents who have been successful in doing this for years and years and years who have kids with Mito. And so check it out. It's under tools on the school advocacy section, and there's some templates there that um, you can customize. That I did see that, Christy, and it's wonderful. Thank this you. is Wendy. It's actually, you know, because that's where I'm at, so 
That's that right. really a great resource and what I was looking for, so it was really great to see that. Thank you, Wendy. That's great. I'll pass that along to um, Kirsten and, and the volunteers that put a lot of sweat tears and two years of work into it, so um, so thank you. So I'm going to wrap up, and, uh, and thank you all so much for being part of our call today. Yeah. It's um, something I look forward to every month in connecting with all of you. Um, I'll remind you about our uh, newly diagnosed support group next week, if you'll help me spread the word to whatever listservs you are part of, um, because that's, like this call, open to anybody. And uh, and you can look for the audio recording and um, summary information of today's call on the website. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Okay. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello?